This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Baselayer. This week we had a great guest. We had Nathaniel Whittemore come on with us. Nat is responsible for Long Read Sunday, which pretty much everyone in crypto these days relies on and always waits for every Sunday morning. It's like a Christmas present every single day, every single week, um, where he does such an amazing job curating the news, the research, the, the reports that people are putting out these days, talking about lots of different things, talking about valuations, talking about where we are in terms of the maturity cycle of, of, the, of the asset class. It, it, it's a, he is a master at this, and he has become a vital part of the overall kind of crypto infrastructure in terms of the lifeblood and kind of what the vibe is in terms of what's happening out there. What did you think? Uh, I, well, I'm also a fangirl of Long Read Sundays, so um, I think we can say nothing negative about Nat here. But one of my favorite things that it's a phrase that's still sticking with me that you'll hear later in the show is this idea of almost an intellectual distortion vortex when somebody who is um, a well-informed and very articulate speaker can kind of bring you into their their vortex of what they believe about crypto and you know whether you agree with it or you're not uh, you kind of are sucked in to listen yeah another thing that we talked about a lot was web 1.0 to the proverbial web 3.0 whereas you know where we are in terms of uh reaching that what that would look like i thought it was super interesting when we were talking about the catalyst what would what would make society and mass really start adopting decentralized applications, whether it was just the total dismissal of Facebook or some of the other social media outlets that are kind of, you know, taking all of our digital selves and selling it to the highest bidder. I thought it was super interesting in terms of talking about where we are in terms of what what that could look like and when that could happen. I thought that was super interesting from, from that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone, uh, stay tuned to listen to our conversation with Nathaniel Whitmore, um, author of Long Read Sundays. But first, a reminder that nothing on this show is investment or legal advice, and it should not be construed as such. Please do your own research. And on the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor, and then you'll hear the conversation that we had with Nathaniel. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds lack appropriate technology to invest confidently in digital assets. Lumina provides institutional-grade portfolio management software specifically designed for crypto, helping institutions like yours manage, bookkeep, and trade digital assets. Use promo code BASELAYER for three months free. Sign up at www.lumina.app. David Nage. Uh, this is Amanda Frankel. And this is Base Layer. Welcome 2019, and we are so excited about 
our guest for the beginning of the year. He's someone who every single Sunday curates all of Twitter's amazing stories, news, research. I don't know how he does it. He is a machine, um, and we are really, really excited to have Nathaniel on with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm super excited to be here. Happy 2019. So I think it would be great if you just kind of start, um, give us the pie in the sky, you know, view of yourself. Um, tell us about kind of how you got into crypto and how Long Read Sunday started. Cool. Uh, so I, pie in the sky, read. I like that. Um, I have a weird trajectory with crypto. I've told the story a couple of times, but the the sort of like obvious trajectory and path for my entrance into crypto is that I spent about a decade in Silicon Valley, was a VC for a while was an operator and an entrepreneur um, company that I worked with for a long time, uh, actually went through Y Combinator, the same class as Coinbase. And that company was focused on helping Fortune 500s, really like Fortune 100s, figure out what new technology to use and why. So we were making educational videos for Coca-Cola about <clears throat> Bitcoin as early as like 2014. And so I kind of always been side-eyeing the, the industry and was super interested. I didn't dive in for, um, Kind of the, the lame reason that I was myopically and insanely focused on making a startup work that oh, got close, but ultimately didn't. Um, and then when that uh, when that company packed up and, and decided to kind of really give up the ghost, um, which was late 2016, uh, I decided to, to be totally independent, uh, work with projects um, that I liked and found interesting around communications, which has sort of been the common thread in everything that I've done and uh, and shifted my focus. So basically, over the course of 2017, um, my goal was to kind of move all of my client work from uh, whatever to uh, to crypto exclusively and then spent all of last year um, exclusively on crypto. So that's kind of the, the obvious professional trajectory. Um, I think the more relevant uh, connection now uh, in a lot of ways is that before I moved to Silicon Valley, it's actually at the, the precipice of a decision. I was either going to move to Silicon Valley and work with a company called change.org on um, helping build out their platform for social action. And this is like 2008, I guess, 2009, something like that. Uh, or I was gonna go to England and get a PhD in the history of the British abolitionist movement. Because what I had been doing previous to that was uh, basically designing programs for students to go around the world and learn about how to make a difference um, in a real way. And so I spent, I was an undergraduate at Northwestern and this was right around September 11th. And there was a huge increase in the interest uh, post September 11th of uh, young people who wanted to go out and see the world and be a part of it and try to make a difference. And um, far from the kind of narrative of them being naive and, uh, and silly and just wanting pats on the back and participation trophies and things like that. These are people who are incredibly frustrated about their inability to make a real difference. And I kind of felt like you can't really have a generation raising its hand saying it wants to get involved and telling them to either wait uh, or just go back to grad school. And so the idea of all these programs that we were creating was to put them in context where they could actually learn what was effective in a different way. So I, I basically, long story short is I was inside of uh, kind of the, the, the social impact world and, and personally was spending all of my time in just the most sort of struggling places that I could find. I thought that I was going to for sure go do conflict resolution or something. So I was in Israel and Palestine and Uganda and Rwanda and the Balkans and all these places. And so, you know, now sitting where I am, uh, I feel like crypto actually is kind of a connecting point in some ways between that part of me 
that set out to learn and understand the, the world in a real way um, in its full complexity. Uh, and the part of me that went to Silicon Valley looking to see how technology could could have a dent in that. So um, anyways, that's that's kind of the, the gist of how I got into crypto. Um, I think in terms of Long Read Sunday, the the short version of it is, well, I guess for people who don't know, uh, <clears throat> I, I spend each week, I kind of uh, spend all week tagging articles that I think are particularly relevant and not just articles, actually, even more importantly, Twitter threads. Um, and then on Sunday, I publish kind of a, a narrative list of 25 or 30 that I think are particularly important. And um, where this came from was an observation that a huge amount of the insight that I was seeing was not even just from blog posts uh, or essays on Medium or something like that, but actually in these sort of, you know, in Twitter threads in or, or even single tweets. And that was, you know, the, the, the great thing about Twitter as a medium is that it is, uh, there's no separation between content and distribution. It's just right there for the audience to see, um, which means it has higher engagement, higher, you know, uh, participation, whatever. The, the problem is that it evaporates incredibly quickly. I actually think that though the evaporation is part of what makes it such a good medium, uh, people are willing to try out ideas in a different way than they are with with other types of writing. So I wanted to capture some of those insights or, or create a record of them, I guess. And that sort of spawned, um, spawned first experimentation with just threads as a medium, curatorial threads as a medium for uh, for kind of getting getting my head around ideas. And then second, um, it turned into uh, Long Read Sunday, which is a, a regular version of that. So um, it's been going now, I think, this week uh, coming up will be 28 weeks and it's it's great I mean I love it and you know all of my time uh, that's not on that is spent helping different kind of private clients with communications and, and marketing and my perspective is that marketing uh, is irrelevant outside of the context of market narratives and that every act of marketing or communications is interacting with a narrative whether you recognize it or not you can be running into a narrative you know, um, uh, and, and sort of telling your company's story in the context of something that people already believe or that people are starting to believe, or you can run against narratives and kind of provide a contrarian view. But uh, you're you're one way or another, you're you're interacting with what the market already believes, and if you don't recognize that, I think that you're sort of um, it, you're just leaving everything to luck. So it kind of for me, it does this great double duty of it gives me the thing that I need to be good at helping, you know, my, my partner companies uh, with what I help them at while also um, being something useful for the community. I, I want to, you know, for the family offices and the institutional investors that are listening to our podcast now, I, I want them to understand just the invaluable work that you're doing. You know, if you're not on Twitter, you need to go on Twitter and follow Nathaniel. It's NLW. It's at NLW. And uh, the work that he produces every single Sunday is just phenomenal. It's usually about anywhere between 25 to 30 threads, as he says. And a lot of them are, you know, synopsises that he also makes on some of the longer research papers that people are putting on Medium. Um, and so it's just a phenomenal repository of information and it really helps even people who are very well, you know, kind of versed in, in crypto. It helps us 
get a mindset on what's happening out there in totality. And the, the, the pulse that you have is just phenomenal because you've seen kind of the over exuberance, you know, in the beginning, the latter part of 17 into kind of, I, I've seen you, you know, type, you know, write about kind of the, the negative and kind of drama and the kind of, you know, dare I say, draconian views that a lot of people seem to be kind of postulating and populating about, you know, it's just, I, I, just from a standpoint, you know, if you could, you know, put a temperature gauge, you know, from on 18, since we just started in 19, where, you know, what kind of temperature did we start at the beginning of the year and what temperature did we end at the end of the year? I think almost a way to think about it is um, which uh, segment, which which views were prevalent, uh, you know, w- within the community, because if you looked at the beginning of, of 18, sort of the end of 17, the beginning of 18, I think you would say you would call it super hot and everyone is feeling FOMO and all these sort of things. But there was a, a loud just there was a loud community of people who were who were calling um, who were skeptical then. Right. It, it wasn't a necessarily a new viewpoint. And obviously, the a, a lot of the voices who have become more prominent over the course of 2018 and the Bitcoiners were sort of uh, chief among them. But, you know, to some extent, I think. This is, uh, one of the things that's interesting, which maybe we'll talk about later, is I, I kind of don't really believe in "quote unquote" contrarian viewpoints. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a, an artifact of a different time uh, that that way of thinking. But we can come back into that. But I, you know, so I think that if you, um, it's really just where where in the spectrum of popularity and how big is the community of people who agree with you. So uh, you know, I'll, that that's the 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 wishy-washy answer, I guess, to 18 is that, you know, throughout the year, it had a lot of both um, excitement and skepticism. Now, over the course of the year, obviously, the uh, skeptical view, or what I think a lot of the proponents of that view would call just the, the rationalist view, came stronger to light, which was um, that the market had gotten way over exuberant, that uh, printing money without demand for said money is doomed to create a lot of um, <laughs> worthless monies, let's call it, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, obviously that that has been the dominant story, the 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 come down, I guess, from the ICO mania. Now, uh, to me, I think the much more interesting uh, the much more interesting thing that happened is that space was cleared for a more level-headed conversation about one what the different dimensions of the crypto industry are what different assets were trying to achieve how comparable they were were they really all part of the same uh industry or they you know just just have in common this sort of lumping that we call crypto um and two uh just which which are likely to be most relevant and when so you know to me i i think in a lot of ways bear markets are much more interesting for good conversation, right? Like there were not a lot of thoughtful, super engaging, um, you know, brilliantly researched medium pieces last December. It was just people joining YouTube and getting a thousand subscribers overnight because they were looking at the same charts as everyone else, like, uh, you know, all day, every day. Like it, it was just, it was absurd. And there's, there's a lot of fun about that. Um, but I, I think it's uh, ultimately there is... There's a there's a lot more to learn when things get a little more quiet and there's more space for um, for for sort of reason reflection. 
So thinking about the idea that things have quieted down now, you know, I think that uh, one of the biggest themes we've discussed with our last few guests is the idea of both inaccurate market information, but also inaccurate uh, disclosures and news coverage kind of over 2018, um, you know, as the crypto hype kind of came and went. So when you look at crypto markets today, you, you know, like, would you say the signal to noise ratio is better? Um, and, you know, if it's still problematic, how do you find your way to sift through, you know, the the proverbial crap to find you know, gold somewhere deep down. Yeah, I mean, I think that the signal to noise ratio is almost inarguably better than it was then um, for a lot of reasons. One, you have just anytime you have more, like you kind of shift problems. If you have more skeptical voices who are more prominent, you may have kind of an over bearishness that under underappreciates the possibilities of some innovations um, in, in on kind of a long term. Uh, but you tend to have less, you know, less um, uh, boisterousness and hype and, you know, the, the frenzy that comes with it in the short term. So, you know, I think the signal to noise ratio in terms of who is a prominent voice has gotten much better. Um, I also just tend to think that the influencers today are, uh, are frankly more thoughtful than they were a year ago, let's call it, um, because, you know, they, they don't have the same financial incentives that the, that the group that was promoting things a year ago did. So, so that's, that's one piece. A second piece is that there is the emergence of a better infrastructure for uh, for just information in the space. And I think that comes uh, on a professional level from new publications, new outlets. Um, obviously the block is, uh, is, is kind of, you know, new on the scene and already putting significant resources in actual reporting and research. Um, and you've got uh, companies like Masari who are trying to kind of productize uh, you know, information transparency and disclosures and things like that. So I, you think that set of efforts on a professional level is increased. I also think you do have the emergence of the, um, I guess, amateur isn't the right word, but non-professional curatorial class of which I'm a part, uh, which helps kind of sift through things. Like one thing you'll notice, part of what I think people respond to is that I, it's not a hard and fast rule or anything like that, because I don't have any hard and fast rules, but I almost never will add to Long Read Sunday um, silly kind of infighting arguments between different factional communities. Uh, I, I just think that it's, it's fine. I think it's totally reasonable. Sometimes those conversations surface insights that are important, but I, I think that in general, um, the stuff that's important is going to make its way to other forms versus people just fighting on Twitter. Um, and because of that, you know, there's a lot of people if you're just like, if I'm one of your primary sources or long read Sunday rather is one of your primary sources for things, you're not necessarily going to get caught up in, in some of that sort of drama. Um, so, you know, you have just all of these different factors, which are increasing the signal to noise ratio. I think that underlying that though, and maybe the most important one is you have new social pressure to be more transparent or clear in your disclosures, right? Like there is going to be, you, you have the, a group of people who will discover and call out, you know, uh, failures on that front. And that's sort of regardless of project, that's not just a, you know, not limited to, um, to any one, uh, you know, coins community or another. Um, I think that's consistent across the case. So, you know, the, the, all of these things taken together, and I think that you have a much, um, a much cleaner start to 
2019 than you did to 2018. Now, of course, that said, um, I think that the there's still massive challenges, questions um, as it relates to information transparency and conflicts of interest. You know, I, I think a really interesting conversation that will play out this year is uh, is the nature of media and journalism and how it's going to work. You know, um, there was a someone posted, I think Spencer Noon posted today or he tweeted something about uh, communities and participation. And Mike, the CEO of the block, said um, exactly this is basically why journalism, traditional journalism is DOA in crypto and journalists have to be actually a part of communities and understand them. And I tend to agree with Mike, but that participant observation model of journalism is fundamentally different than traditional journalism. And um, for anyone who's been watching, it's what TechCrunch has been playing out for the last 10 years too, but it's still uh, an interesting paradigm shift that I'm not sure we've totally wrapped our head around. Um, yeah, I, I just don't know. I don't know exactly how you can create media models that don't have uh, conflicts of interest. But I think that there's some good people in the space who are now trying to figure out what what the right approach to that is and how disclosures help and everything like that. So, you know, I, I think this is relevant, particularly in the context of new market entrants who are not well versed in crypto entering the field and what to expect. Um, I think that the the overall you know, it's a lot more positive coming in now than it was a year ago, um, if for no other reason than these are conversations that are important to people and that people are being diligent and thoughtful about. So a lot of conversation, as you know, has been going around regarding adoption. Um, you have DAP radar and you have had, you know, the conversation engulfing around, well, all these DAPs that are being built on Ethereum aren't really getting into users. And you had, you know, the beginning, well, the middle part of 18, the whole CryptoKitties fiasco. Um, where are we in terms of, because you're from, a, you know, from your perspective, you know, being in Silicon Valley, you guys know about adoption. You guys know about getting, you know, acquisition of, of clients and customers. You know, where are we in terms of adoption and what part does news and information and the work that you're doing in terms of kind of curating what's happening in this world, how does that all interplay with each other for 19 going forward? So I think I think DAP adoption is uh, not a particularly useful heuristic just yet. Um, and, I'll, and I'll come back to why that is in a minute. But um, so I think, uh, speaking of curating, so Arjun uh, Balaji uh, just published his kind of tome of theses for 2019, which that is was, awesome. That was a lead-in, by the way. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's going to be hard to top that. I think, um, especially I love that he put his confidence intervals with each prediction, which I think is just a, a great additional layer of of information to know. It's like this is one I feel ninety percent about versus fifty percent about. Um, super cool. Anyways, the 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 thing that I thought one of the things that I agree most strongly with was his assertion at the end about where adoption is likely to come from in twenty nineteen, and he he pinned it to to three potential buckets. The first one is 
uh, a hedge against unstable monetary regimes. So uh, flight to crypto from, you know, uh, Venezuela uh, or, or the Turkish lira or something like that. Right. So that's one. Uh, the second is, um, I think a great way of putting it, it's kind of like a, a call option on the potential that Bitcoin becomes a, uh, a store of value in the future, right? So you kind of investing in the long-term store of value narrative of Bitcoin. Um, and then the third was belief in the narrative or the idea that uh, Ethereum or one of these other kind of Ethereum competitors is going to be, usher in a new decentralized paradigm uh, for the web, um, uh, you know, which has been called Web3 or whatever. And um, I think that he's, he's pretty right about those things. Um, I guess the one, the one question that I think is, uh, is open around that is where um, sort of decentralized or open financial alternatives like collateralized loans with DAI or something fit into that framework. Um, so I, I think that when we talk about adoption, it's useful to think about those terms. So one, uh, are within the context of kind of unstable monetary regimes around the, around the world, are, is, are, are, is capital actually flowing into cryptos as an alternative? Um, I, I think, frankly, that there's kind of some indications that it's happening in Venezuela. If you look at, uh, you know, the, the, where they sit in like the, the local Bitcoin, you know, uh, offline exchange rankings in terms of participation relative to their size. Um, there's also a lot of anecdotal indication that, that still most people don't know. Um, I, to me, that long-term use case is not, uh, it, it wouldn't, I wouldn't read people not taking their money, you know, or their Turkish lira's and putting it into crypto as a sign that that's not going to be a likely case. I think that ultimately there's still a lot of volatility in this industry. Um, there's not good fiat on ramps everywhere. It's still really difficult. So, you know, but it is, it is still an indicator to look at. Um, uh, I do think it's, you know, it, it's worth noting that there's much more interest in infrastructure down there. I'll actually be down in Argentina and Uruguay in a couple of months. And so I'm interested to, to see what Buenos Aires is like compared to what it was a few years ago. Um, so, so that's one. A second, as it relates to kind of the the store of value, you know, I think that the whether people continue to want to accumulate Bitcoin is to me a major. Like that's that's a, a as important an adoption question as anything else. Um, are are people taking advantage of uh, of kind of down markets to continue to accumulate? I think one of the narratives from 2018 that I I do believe came to kind of fruition a little bit was the acceptance um, among a lot more people maybe than than accepted it going into the year that holding is a form of usage if. Uh, if you, your interest in the asset is the long-term store of value. So I think that that's a, a type of adoption that, that we should consider. Now, when it comes to the kind of DAP adoption and Web3 adoption, um, I think that there's... Uh, so one of the perspectives that I share that uh, I didn't think would be really different but feels a little bit different is coming out of you know a decade in Silicon Valley and background in venture capital, like the, um, the failure rates of these projects is super unsurprising and unconcerning to me. Um, I think like startups just fail. It's what they do. They're terrible at, I mean, 
it is just the height of hubris to try to create something new. Um, but we, I mean, it, it's essential that people do it. Uh, but it, it's really hard. It's really difficult. It's really difficult under all circumstances. And in this case, we got rid of, at least temporarily, the filter mechanism of venture capital. Uh, and so just consequently, and this is, this is not a judgment on that, there's a, there's a lot that's um, exciting about that and interesting, even if this iteration didn't work. But uh, of course, part of what happened is that more projects were able to get through on less like actual strength of project than anything other than marketing and hype. And so you would expect from that the failure rate to be higher, um, which I think is, is playing out or is going to play out. Now, on top of that, you also have, you know, paradigm shifts are hard to call as they're happening. And, um, you know, it was it took a long time for web 2.0 and this idea of uh of of an internet that users could interact like create not just consume because to me that's the biggest difference between web 1.0 and web 2.0 is we, we left a paradigm of strict consumption which was kind of websites in the 90s into a world of creation and that started bubbling up in 98 99 i mean you know earlier than that even but it really didn't come <clears throat> into the mainstream until uh, I guess MySpace, but really Facebook is when it when it went mainstream, and and not Facebook of 2004, but Facebook of 2007, 2008. And so you're talking about a decade long shift from when people first started talking about this, and when the term Web 2.0 was first used, which I think was like 2000 or 2001. The first Web 2.0 conference I think was 2001 that O'Reilly did. Um, it's a really long time span, and I think that when it comes to the idea of Web three, this idea of uh, of an alternative infrastructure that is not centrally controlled, the the process or the the, the challenge of the next five to ten years is going to be figuring out in what circumstances the 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 value of censorship resistance and uh, and sort of uh, you know whatever benefit you're trying to have decentralization. Uh, achieve are worth it compared to shifts in convenience, or alternatively, uh, a development of the, the sort of user experiences have to be comparably convenient to current centralized alternatives. And I think it's going to be a really messy long-term period of, of experimenting and figuring out where that is. Um, I think one of the things that's happening now that hasn't really been spoken about too much, but is, is certainly interesting to me, is that there's this weird there's a weird challenge and dissonance between uh, a lot of the people who are conceptually excited about decentralized web and the projects that are trying to bring things like censorship resistance into the mainstream, right? Like there is, you know, I, I in some ways, Gab, uh, the social network that, you know, won't, won't ban you for having you know, far right opinions or whatever, um, which has basically been their, their marketing to date, uh, is one of the strongest or at least the most active examples of an alternative to a centralized platform that's trying to make it. And I think that, you know, based on the part of the community of Web3 folks who I know, 
there's uh, <clears throat> the idea that Gab is their standard bearer is very uncomfortable. So, you know, that's just one small example of where there's going to be um, just a lot of tension and a lot of experimenting in what comes to fruition. So uh, long story short, this is a very long-winded way of saying that, like, I don't particularly care about DAP user numbers. And that's not to say, and that's not negative in the sense that I'm not using that as a, as a heuristic to write them off and not care about Web3. I think the idea, basically to me, the next 20 years are going to be an absolute battle between liberty and sovereignty and, and power and control uh, between privacy and surveillance. Like it is, it is written all over the, the, the face of the world right now. And what Web3's role in that is and where it's important, um, I'm not sure, but I think it's a lot more important than whether CryptoKitties you know, 2.0 explodes or not in the short term. Um, so I want to return to this idea of narratives since, um, you know, everything you focus on with Long Read Sundays is about tracking different market narratives. I guess it's almost a bit meta. It's, um, it's not necessarily tracking the market directly. It's tracking how other people are thinking about it. Um, mm -hmm. And when you look at market narratives, uh, you know, from a crypto perspective, how often would you say you, um, you, you consciously or unconsciously um, separate crypto narratives from general market narratives or include them? I mean, I know there's good examples, right? Like data privacy and crypto, people talk about Cambridge Analytica and that's um, a heavily intertwined narrative. But um, I guess how much would you say happens within the community versus um, interacting with other macro trackers, say like volatility in the S&P? That's a really good question. So I think that the, the, the short answer to that is that there's obviously like, radically more um there's radically more movement around uh the sort of ins the narratives that are insular to the community itself right like what people think about ethereum on any given day versus what they thought about it before or like things like mining death spiral narratives or whatever right like these are these are kind of navel gazing and not in a bad way just in the like we're all in our own industry we're trying to compete i mean in some ways i see that the narrative battle for crypto is a battle to define it for that larger market you know what i mean like part of why these things get so contentious is that if you presume that there's an upper limit on the amount of resources that can flow into crypto assets as an asset class or as an industry, as a space, or whatever, and you really care about, you know, the idea of non-sovereign money versus the idea of uh, decentralized web, there's, there's almost this narrative competition for what uh, people looking in at crypto think about it when they see it, right? This is why I think the Bitcoiners hate hated the, the sort of blockchain, not Bitcoin era so much is that it, it was a, you know, a, a major net flow of potential resources, both monetarily, but also interest focused time, talent, et cetera, uh, away from, you know, into, into big vacuous IBM projects and things like that. So, um, so anyways, the, 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 there's a ton more going on in terms of the, the narratives that are happening uh, within crypto on any given day. But I think in a lot of ways, the, 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 the most important stuff tends to be those things that level up into the, the broader markets um, and, and interact with them in some way, such as the, you know, but those are like kind of the long horizon things, right? Like the, the, the examples that you pointed out, um, you know, the long, you know, the, the question of privacy is, is a great example of something that I think is the crypto narrative is very related to the, to the larger narrative. So you talked um just before about web 3.0 and you talked about the history and i've actually been spending a lot of time on the history i don't know if you read brian mccullough's book but it's pretty awesome 
Um, and he also had a podcast where he had about 140 interviews that he posted on there about Web 1.0. Um, and now there's this new thing on Nat Geo. It's Valley of the Boom that's coming out this month, which is talking all about Web 1.0. And you've experienced it a bit being out there. Um, and it took a long time, relatively speaking, for you know, kind of people to start using the internet to consume and to purchase and to put their credit card. I remember I was, you know, kind of anecdotally tell a story that I remember when I first went on to AOL Instant Message, I, I had to come up with a screen name because there is no way in hell that I was going to put my my first and last name on there. Now, obviously on Twitter, everyone sees that I'm David Nage and everyone, you know, knows that's that's just who I am. And it's just, you don't even think about it anymore what point you know based off of what you read and what you've been talking and people you've been talking to what point you know i'm not asking for a prediction but at what point do you see this paradigm shift that you talked about you know where people just say you know you know this is just the right thing to do we should just use like an orchid which is a decentralized internet or we should use the you know the kind of the crypto version of venmo whenever it comes out you know, is there a point where people just say, you know, okay, this makes sense? You know, do you see that in the foreseeable future? Is it the millennials that everyone keeps kind of air quoting and talking about the millennials are going to push this over the edge? Um, is, is there this one kind of event, you know, or is there multiple events that you kind of alluded to that you think are just going to push it over the edge to just make it, you know, very clear as day that this is a better way forward? Um, in my opinion, it's going to take probably you know somewhere between less than five, uh, more than five years, and probably less than you know twenty. Um, but you know, based off of what you've seen historically and what you hear and what you talk about, when, when do you see that happening? So I, I think that my sense is that the web, to the extent that there is a web three paradigm shift post web two, I don't think it's quite the same as the shift from web one to web two and, and here's what I mean by that. Web 1.0, the tools of creation were, were totally limited by your technology kind of capacity, by the cost of servers and data and all these sort of things, right? Like there were these big barriers to entry that made it um, impossible more or less for people to really participate and engage and create. Uh, Web 2.0 was in some ways, um, I, 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 in some ways I feel like the, the propagation of cheap technology, cheap data, better tools, et cetera, made that um, inevitable, uh, made that inevitable. And then a the sort of philosophy of it was a little bit lighter, right? Like it didn't start so much. Well, I, I don't want to put words in people's mouths who were there. I think there was a community of people who really believed in like making sure that people had the tools of creation. But to some extent, it was just an inevitability of technology change. I don't know that I think that Web3, um, the kind of re-architecting of the internet as, uh, as decentralized is as inevitable. And in some ways, I think that... Um, and this is this is weird. I've never quite articulated it like this, but I almost I, I think I think that the best case scenario is that the centralized web paradigm and the uh, decentralized web paradigms live next to each other and are competing and robust um, perpetually, rather than the decentralized paradigm exclusively replaces the 
the centralized paradigm. And, and what I mean by that is that I think that for the decentralized web to completely uh, displaced the centralized web, it would mean that things had gotten so bad that the average person was so concerned with surveillance and privacy and seizure of their assets and all of these sort of things that they were like fundamentally unwilling to uh, to use any service that was centralized. Um, and and I, I think that that would be a really bad outcome for the world. Now, it's, it's not impossible that that's where we get. Um, I do think that the, the factors that are the factors that are most likely to drive people to that are um, are uh, you know sort of totalitarian states. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that I think that what I would like to see happen, my kind of optimistic point of view, is that decentralized alternatives start to leverage their advantages to build different types of network effects. Right? Like, I mean, it's very early days, but things like scent, you're going to see experiments with. Uh, with people being paid for their content on social media. I mean, Steemit is another example of this, where people get paid for their contributions uh, rather than sort of the, 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 the value of content flowing out to advertisers. You know, who knows? That might not be the right model. Maybe that advertising is the right model and it just needs better, uh, better controls, better restrictions, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, I think that the, what I hope is that these decentralized alternatives take advantage of their um, of, of the things that they can do uniquely that centralized companies can't to build audiences that then propagate them because you know everything comes down to network effects and uh, you know if there was if you create a, a you know decentralized alternative that cuts people into the value in some way uh, and um, and helps them you know, incentivizes them to, to propagate the network. It's not impossible to me that the, the landscape changes. Um, so I don't know, but I, I think that, so the, the, the summary answer is, I don't think that it's a complete shift unless things get really bad. Um, I think that it's, a, it's an alternative paradigm that offers real different types of advantages uh, in, in different contexts. Um, and I do think though that it takes, uh, it takes a, a while because I think networks are, you know, the networks take a long time to build. And at the beginning, there's a lot of belief and hope and, you know, um, and, and vision and aspiration uh, before kind of network effects uh, start to make things really valuable. Interesting. So I just before Amanda goes uh, with the last question and Nathaniel, thank you so much. You spent a lot of good, good time with us. Um, it's interesting that you that we're talking about this because, you know, back in the day with Andreessen and with everyone that was building 1.0, it was supposed to be better, faster, you know, to some extent, you know, at no cost, you know, this whole notion of free. Um, if you've read George Gilder's book, it's a pretty good revelation into kind of what free actually is. And we actually, it's not free, but we are the product. Well, whenever it's free, we are the actual product. So it, it sounds to me that your, the, your point of view is that it's, for, to see this kind of paradigm shift, there has to almost be some sort of a negative catalyst. It's not necessarily that blockchain, where if we want to call that anymore, blockchain, but crypto or things that are decentralized aren't necessarily going to be better, faster, cheaper. But it's actually something on the on the kind of the reverse, where the things that we currently have fail at such grand scale that we just need to have an alternative. I, yeah, I mean, just to, I guess 
it's this is a point that's worth uh, clarifying. Um, there's there's probably a difference here between financial products and social services and web apps and things like that, which I think is a, a point that people try to make a lot. I think that it's it's possible that you know better, faster, cheaper, uh, you know, or or different. Um, is actually the motivation for financial products, right? So uh, cross-border, you know, borderless value transfer and things like that. Um, or, you know, I don't know, they're, they're, like, I guess in some ways, it, part of the, the period that we're in right now is we're really looking, it's very hard to imagine things that aren't one-to-one -one comparable with things that exist now, right? So, uh, so crypto money transfers instead of, you know, uh, Western Union transfers and things like that. Um, I think where a lot of things get interesting and where, you know, I, I try to kind of zoom out and, and spend some of my attention is things that aren't possible now. And can we imagine a future in which it will be unbelievable that they're not possible then? Um, like one of the things that I think is, is kind of fascinating is, uh, you know, decentralized organizations um, and, and approaches to organizing people that don't conform to traditional legal structures. Um, to me, it seems crazy that the limits of our formalized uh, interaction, you know, there's a big space between a Facebook group and a uh, nonprofit in terms of how the world actually works, but there isn't in terms of how the legal system is organized. So, it, you know, to me, that's a, an example of an area where, you know, that just, it, it's nearly impossible to, to organize things, um, you know, cogently right now. And, and maybe these sort of new technologies create opportunities for that. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's always worth getting into specifics with these areas, but I do think when it comes to, when it comes to like, for example, people getting off of Facebook, let's just use that as an example. I think that the, the circumstances, uh, the circumstances have to be really bad, I think, to, to create a, a mass movement away. Or, you know, network theory would probably suggest that they have to be bad enough that a big enough majority moves there that there can be some hype and then a new network forms. So I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I, I do think that no matter what, crypto is the enabling infrastructure and the world is the catalyst for, for these changes. Um, I, you know, and I think that uh, this gets back to Amanda's question about where narratives intersect. That's kind of why I find those conversations so much more exciting and enlightening in some ways than the, the, the um, immediate term stuff within the crypto community is because I think that that's where you see a lot of, that's where there's more opportunity to kind of get a glimpse at, at what set of macro circumstances um, crypto might be operating within. So one final question for you, coming back to what you said earlier about how you disagree with the idea of there being um, contrarian viewpoints, because that, that, you know, in effect ascribes um, some significant amount of power to whatever the dominant market narrative is at the time. Um, you know, crypto, I think, as you also mentioned, it can be inherently combative within the community. So when you think of the idea of disliking contrarian viewpoints, like, how do you, I guess, um, balance the idea, like, contrarian, I guess, is um, very, very dualistic, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so when you look at market narratives, how do you... Um, I guess, find that middle ground. It, it's, it sounds like for, I, I guess I shouldn't use the word reasonableist it, um, since that's, uh, I don't know if you've seen Parks and Rec, there's a cult called the reasonableist and they predict the <laughs> end of the world with like Zorp the lizard god coming. So maybe, maybe that's not the right word, but um, you know, in, in closing, how do you, and I guess how can other people find a way to not get sucked into the, the dualistic 
um, crypto narratives and try to keep a more nuanced view. I think uh, so. I, I think that you, what it comes out to is just that it, it's really fascinating. Like part of what I think is so exciting about crypto is that it is a place that to me is um, it's like the I, I don't even know the the primordial soup of so much that's going on in the larger society. Like you have every different type of group from like the far right to sort of like the disenfranchised left from like a, a, a you know. Uh, political kind of perspective to different motivations and it's all just kind of like it's small enough that everyone knows everyone else at least on twitter and it's constantly fighting and it's but at the same time it's like you know super high stakes because a huge amount of money has come into it even though it's small relative to where we think it's going to be like it's very fascinating and and i think that one of the one of the things that's happening in crypto that that is, is sort of happening everywhere else but will more in the future is just the the quickness with which uh, new memes or ideas or narratives can um, can propagate really, really fast, right? Like you can watch uh, an idea that was sort of, you know, unpopular one month become just dominant and everyone assumes it, you know, the, the next month. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of, there, there's a lot of value, let's say, in people who are the most articulate. You know, I don't think it's an accident that Murad has become one of the the best known commentators in crypto, and it's it's in part because he's super smart and he's thoughtful and he spent a lot of time reading. It's also in part because he's incredibly articulate, and he can speak in a way that makes you feel. It's very you almost have to kind of get out of his uh, his, his intellectual distortion field to see if you even agree. Which I, I mean, I think there's a lot to agree with what he says, but um, but it, it, part of it is just that he's so so damn articulate. I think Nick Carter is the same way, especially with writing. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, 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 the thing that's important to do in crypto, I believe, is just to almost to kind of lower the stakes on any given conversation or argument. Um, I think it's a superpower actually to be able to not be drawn into every fucking argument, excuse my language on, on Twitter, uh, in crypto, um, because it's just like, I don't know, you can get sucked into that hole and be there forever. Um, so I, I think when it comes to contrarian narratives, the valuable thing is to always kind of say like, you know, is it reasonable that this idea, which wasn't on the scene two months ago, is now being kind of repeated by everyone? And what is it dismissing or overlooking, right? So I guess like right now, a contrarian view would be something like you think that dApps and dApp tokens are gonna have a really good year. And <laughs> I think that that's likely not the case. However, it would be very easy to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater and be totally disinterested in tokenization as a whole, rather than say like, okay, well, like I can simultaneously, like it's not mutually exclusive to not be that interested in the first generation of applications or, or decentralized applications and their sort of payment tokens without thinking that there's no room left for experiments uh, with tokenization. Um, and that's not just security tokens or things like that. That's, you know, actual different types of uh, types of, uh, of network organization. So, you know, I don't know. For, for me, the thing that I try to keep in mind is just um, is, 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 is basically just try to like sit up from a time horizon perspective from like immediate and what, what everyone's saying that week to, you know, just a slightly longer horizon and try to surface the, the things that have the most durability, um, the ideas that have the most durability. So I guess parting shots, you know, why don't you, before we sign off, uh, why don't you, is there, if there's any, we're not asking for predictions and I'm, 
we don't do Bitcoin price predictions because I, I rather just put lemon juice on an open wound and put salt on it too and have a party because those just don't really those don't really interest me. Well, you know, why don't you, you know, if you had some narrative kind of predictions by the end of 2019, as we just started the year, you know, maybe one or two that you can that you can think of um, in terms of what you think we're all going to be talking about, you know, this time next year. I think, OK, so let's start broad and then I'll go a couple specific, maybe. Um, I think every year goes that goes by the. The Lindy effect of crypto as a whole is going to get stronger. Um, I think it's pretty unimaginable at this point that the industry just implodes in and itself. And I think that that's every single year has kind of net net uh, been better for that than the year before. Um, but I think that there's there may be maybe at a tipping point where there's enough um, interest, talent, involvement that some amount of things are going to be figured out are going to be made to be valuable. You know, whether they can justify the valuations from last year or not is a different question. But um, I think that the, the, let's put it this way, the march of uh, crypto as a thought space and as an industry is going to continue unabated, almost sort of within reason, kind of regardless of where the, the immediate price um, prices lie. So that that's kind of one that's a, not a pretty boring one. Um, I think that uh, to me, it feels like smart contract kind of platforms are going to continue to have, I think it's going to be a hard year um, because I think that, I don't know, it's, it's, it's weird to say, I wish I had better words for this, but I think that it's not impossible that smart contract platforms uh, are sort of roughly where they should be in terms of experimentation and development. And the problem is not how fast that they're moving. This is as a whole in aggregate. It's not singling out any project, but um, the the like that that everything is being done under incredible scrutiny because of the way that things were capitalized. And what I mean by that is that if this was the Silicon Valley company a decade ago started kind of this idea of smart contracts, they do it quietly for like four years before you ever heard of it, you know, and um, yeah, I think there's a whole different conversation about whether the, the operational efficiency of open source projects and whether specific projects are hitting their milestones and things like that. But I think that it's going to be, I think it's going to be a really tough year for um, for DApps and, and token platforms. But I don't necessarily think that that's because they're um, long-term irrelevant. I think that there's just a lot of experimentation and figuring out which use cases matter and iterating that's going to have to happen. Now, within that context, one of the things that I think could be interesting is that I think that uh, I think that it may be that the most valuable skill from the last uh, the, the last year will be proven not to have been technical capacity or marketing chops, but treasury management. Because um, I can see scenarios where better finance projects like really throw the weight of still having money in the coffers around to absorb all of the kind of talent that gets cast out uh, as projects fail into their orbit, regardless of whether they were the most desirable uh, uh, community to be associated with in the beginning. Um, I don't necessarily think community wins when there's the money runs out, I guess is the point. And I think community might reconstitute itself in the context of projects that are better financed. Um, so, so that's something that I'm, I'm kind of watching with some interest. 
Um, and then I guess the last is kind of a smaller, but uh, but maybe a more specific prediction that I think is is something I'm I'm curious about is I I think that it's likely that we're to see more global volatility, not less, um, in the coming year uh, between uh, Merkel leaving Germany and Brexit still happening and the beginning of um, uh, the U.S. presidential season. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot, a lot, 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 lot more interest and uh, and motivation around the sort of um, semi-formal uh, organizations that uh, of the type that I mentioned, just sort of uh, with global political instability, there seems to be there's more motivation for organizations that aren't um, set up inside traditional uh, circumstances, uh, both for good and bad. I, I, you know, I think it can be used for a lot of nefarious purposes and a lot of good ones. But um, but generally, I, I think that that's going to be an area that we'll see a lot more uh, a lot more people experimenting with over the next year. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Nathaniel. Um, we've, I mean, I know I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And I think, what, what was the phrase you used to describe Murad? Was it intellectual vortex? Yeah, the, well, so, so the, there's a classic thing with um, Steve Jobs where uh, he had a reality distortion field. That's what they reality said. Reality distortion field. And, and I said Murad kind of has an intellectual distortion field where um, you, have to, you have to separate yourself from like, go take a hot shower or a cold shower or something and, and figure out if you actually agree with them because it sounds so good as he says it. Intellectual distortion field. I feel like that's the perfect phrase to kind of sum up um, crypto 2018 as a whole. Well, um, yeah. thank you again for joining us. Um, everybody, if you haven't seen Long Read Sundays, you should. Um, you can follow Nathaniel on Twitter at, at NLW, only three letters, at NLW. Um, and thank you again for joining us and hopefully... We look forward to following up at the end of 2019 to see uh, how these market narrative predictions turn out. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.